in a world where everyone knows everything. <laughs> yeah, right. One dad stands below everyone and yells, I know nothing. Please welcome. Please welcome. This is the Dad Who Knows Nothing podcast. All right. So welcome to the Dad Who Knows Nothing podcast. I'm very excited. We have an out-of-this-world guest today. We have Philip Baldwin, who is a space communications and navigation operations manager at NASA. He's worked there for 17 years, and very excited to have him on to uh, talk about he's a dad like me, and very excited to talk about a little bit about NASA and his job there. Uh, I think this will be a pretty cool one. So, Philip, thanks for yeah, joining me. Yeah, looking forward to it. All right. So, Philip, um, your journey to NASA, I, I always like to ask people, you know, especially people that have pretty cool, well, at least it sounds pretty cool, and I'm sure it's pretty cool to, <laughs> to work at NASA in this job. How'd you get there? How'd you get to be a space communications and navigation operations manager? Well, I'll say that my, my dad also worked at NASA. Oh, <laughs> so that, that helps. That, that helped. <laughs> it's all in who you know, right? Relationships. That's right. That's right. My dad uh, started in the 70s at NASA. And actually, a little bit later on, my uncle started there as well. So both my uncle and my dad worked at NASA in the 70s. And so when I grew up, I always had that NASA ness in my blood, right? <laughs> Where I heard great stories, heard about the science, the the the, the exciting work they were, they were doing. And that always had me uh, excited and interested in, in that kind of work. And I always took things apart when I was younger, as you can imagine. Played with Legos. Uh, did some things like, you know... Uh, plugging things into the wall that probably shouldn't have been plugged into the wall and breaking all the breakers and turning lights off in the house right. and definitely keeping my parents on edge at growing up. And so just that excitement towards science and uh, creation, all that was really great for me growing up and really influenced uh, my interest in NASA and uh, just that, that ability to learn more. And so that's, that's where it started with me. And then when I had an opportunity to take the classes I needed and apply as a contractor to support NASA, and then later a civil servant, I, I, I jumped on it. And uh, it's been a, an exciting path, and I, I enjoyed it. Very nice. So uh, I know they can't go into details about specific things that you're doing, but, but can you give a little bit of an overview of what your role is at NASA and, and what your duties are? Yeah, so I'm the operations manager, as you mentioned, for the Space Communications and Navigation Program at headquarters. And so my role is actually overseeing all of NASA's space communications. So that's every connection we have with all of our satellites. Um, we have several different networks. We have a deep space network that communicates to missions like Voyager 1 and 2, which are way outside <laughs> of our solar system. They're in interstellar space. So we have large antennas that communicate with those objects. Um, we also have the near space network that includes two components. One is a ground network of antennas, smaller antennas, uh, they're around the globe, uh, commercial and government-owned uh, systems. And we also have a space network, a part of the Near Space Network, that is a, about 10 satellites that orbit, they're not orbit, they're, they're geostationary. They are around the globe that actually provide communication services to, uh, like, ISS, the International Space Station, and to Hubble, and they support all the government launches. And so uh, I, I support those and oversee those operations and all the communications we have uh, to our spacecraft to make sure that the public can see the great images. So when you see a, a Hubble image, that's through a network that I oversee. So when you hear an astronaut's voice, 
uh, from ISS. That's through the network that I, I oversee as well and make sure that it's operating to have that communication to the astronauts and all the images that we see can, can actually be presented to the public. All right. So uh, it seems like probably keeps you busy trying to keep those things uh, working the way they should. If it's anything like uh, telecommunications overall, it's probably uh, uh, an ongoing source of bugs and things like that that you that you got to keep working yep. through. So the most recent project, uh, the most recent large satellite that was uh, sent up there, can you tell us about that one? Yeah, we had the James Webb Space Telescope, which is a like a replacement to Hubble. It's an interesting project that had about 200 or so deployments. It was like origami. Mm. Basically, it was folded up into a small little spacecraft to be launched. And then when it went out to space, about a couple of million miles out, it had to unfold, and it had mirrors that folded out. And 200 deployments. You can imagine all these things are just unfolding, unfurling, and the antenna, the, the structure. And it's out there now, fully deployed. And able to take great images, and I actually had the opportunity to to go to their to their because sometimes when we work in communications, we're kind of in the background. They call ourselves the invisible network, so it's all working, nobody really knows what's happening. But like it's almost like your cell phone, right? You put your cell phone and you make a phone call, and you're just connected, but you don't know what's happening in the background. So I had the opportunity to go to the James Webb Mission Operations Center and actually see the images that are being collected. And that was a great experience to be able to see images that nobody's seen before of galaxies. And it's just amazing to see what they're able to find uh, using this new telescope. It's interesting because even then, uh, they were trying to do calibration on this, this new space telescope. And in the calibration, uh, they looked at an area that was supposed to be a dark part of the sky. Nothing was supposed to be there. And when they looked in that dark part of the sky, they call us like the invisible network where, you know, a lot of times we aren't really known that it's working like your cell phone. So when you, when you pull out your cell phone and it just all automatically works, right? You make a phone call and something happened in the background, but you don't know what it was. You're just making your call or sending your message. And so for us, it's, it's similar to that. So for the James Webb Space Telescope, JWST, because I'll call it that because NASA loves acronyms. <laughs> so the JWST um, satellite uh, when it when it launched, uh, sometimes we're we're supporting communications, we're supporting all the images coming back, but we don't always get to see them. Me personally, right? I'm I'm allowing right. it to connect, I'm allowing the images to come through, but sometimes I see them the same time the public sees them, <laughs> even though we're in the forefront of actually providing that link. So I did have an opportunity to go to their mission operations center and go through and actually see some of the images that they were collecting, some of the never before seen images, and that was an amazing experience because. Uh, at one point, they were showing me a, a portion of the sky where they were trying to do calibration of the satellite, where they have to align. They have 18 mirrors, hexagon mirrors that they have to align. And when they were trying to do their alignment and calibration, they are like, we're going to look at a part of the sky that's blank. Nothing's supposed to be here. All of our telescopes previously, ground-based, space-based, there's a blank part of the sky. We're going to go here and calibrate. When they went there, they took, like a, I think, about a one-second snapshot. Mm-hmm. And they found hundreds of galaxies. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> never before known, never before seen. They just had no record of these galaxies before, ever existing. And it was a black part of the sky. In their current star charts, this is a blank part of the sky. And you just, that's just amazing. They were like, wow, where'd this come from? <laughs> the telescope is more powerful. And it right. just picked up that, yeah, there's not a black part of the sky. Every part of the sky is full of galaxies. 
and they were able to show that to me, and it was just amazing to see the the spiral mm. <laughs> and all the galaxies that that no one has ever seen before. And it's just amazing that there's that much out there, and that they're able to explore and actually see that and see that that greatness of space. That's awesome. Pull, literally pulling back the court the curtain to uh, get a better view. Yep, really exactly. cool. So what would so you mentioned back when you were talking about your journey? What if someone was interested in working for NASA? You talked a little bit about is there a process that people have to go through? I mean, certainly there's probably stuff they should be taking in school, right, to get some schooling. But then there's a civil service piece. So how does that work? Can you talk more about that? Yeah, it's you know, uh, math and science, of course, is a key component of of NASA. Uh, and as a as a, a young person, if you're looking at internships, that's always a great thing if you want to get involved in science. And so we have a lot of interns that support us. I have an intern this summer, and uh, so that's a good way to kind of get involved into NASA. And the hiring Probably process pretty competitive is competitive. Is yeah. is pretty competitive. It's pretty challenging. I have to admit <laughs> that that is true. But uh, uh, there is a thousands of interns that we do hire every summer, and they support different programs. And uh, classes like that, but there's also NASA has a large civil servant base, but also has a lot of uh, contractors from companies that support NASA. They actually more than double the actual civil servant work for, workforce. And so there's also internships through those companies that support NASA. And also, like like me, I, I wasn't a civil servant at first. I was a contractor that worked for NASA, right? So I supported different NASA programs as a contractor, and then later it was an opportunity to become a civil servant. And I applied for that job and was able to get hired on. Um, so, but the civil servants and the contractors work closely together to to accomplish uh, a lot of goals. And actually, one fun fact is that NASA JPL, because you probably hear a lot about JPL. JPL is actually a contract workforce. The entire center there at, at uh, JPL is contractors, and they actually work for Caltech, University of uh, California, Caltech there. So, um, they are contractors as well. So we do. The contractors and civil servants work hand in hand to accomplish a lot of the tasks that NASA does. Yeah, it must help NASA with a pretty diverse workforce to be able to uh, have it flexible like that with contractors and and the normal staff as well. So, yep. where are you located? What location are you working out of? I work at the headquarters. It's in Washington D.C. Oh, okay. All so right. previously, I worked at uh, Goddard Space Flight Center, which is in Greenbelt, Maryland. Okay. And then about four years ago, I uh, moved down to headquarters. Oh, nice. Very good. So you've been there 17 years. You've done, you know, you've been been around the block, so to speak, at NASA. What do you, what would a lot of people be surprised to know about working at NASA? What do you think they would be shocked to know? Maybe not uh, shocked, know, but surprised. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think the, the level of impact I think a single person can have, which is maybe a little scary. <laughs> uh, you know, when we think about NASA, even me, when I was even at NASA, you know, there was kind of this thought of, wow, NASA, they're doing all this great thing. These are astronauts, and everything seems so out of reach, especially when I was first starting. It was very, like, separated. And then as I started to work more and more there, I realized that, no, the decisions that I make actually will impact something else that's a bigger program. You know, example I give people is that for our Artemis program, which is our program to actually go back to the moon, targeting 2025 for a human landing, 2025 is a target for that, um, you know, I came in when I started at headquarters when that was announced in 2019. I spent the summer of 2019 designing our communications plan for the lunar surface and how we're actually going to communicate to the moon. Now, you know, 
two years before, I figured this was been some big think tank, and like there was going to be like a, uh, like a, you know, you see the movies, right? They're all in the room, these big monsters are like, okay, how are we going to do this? And, and now it kind of involved uh, engineers like me and myself in, in the basement of the headquarters and just drafting out initial plans. So, okay, well, how can we go back to the moon and how are we going to communicate with the astronauts? And, and, and that was it. <laughs> Sometimes we think it's this grander things. Of course, it gets reviewed and we, we, we vet it and we uh, make more detailed plans. But a lot of that is just really just engineering stuff that we just get together and, and work on and pretty much use our creativity to decide how to move forward. And it takes a like, creative mind, and, and, and a lot of that kind of comes back down to earth that, well, it's not this, there's not some, so much separation between what NASA is doing and what the people are doing. Even with working with astronauts and talking to the, the ISS, things like that, that we sometimes have this big thought about that this is, wow, this is great. They're talking to astronauts. And when you get to NASA, it actually becomes a little less, <laughs> it brings it down to earth a little bit more because you're like, oh, well, that, that was an astronaut I talked to yesterday. Okay. It's not. You know, yeah. they're real people. These are all yeah. real people. <laughs> I guess that's like, uh, I, I guess that's like a lot of industries. You know, I was, I, I had a prior conversation with a neurosurgeon and he was telling, you know, we were talking about one of his days, you know, tell me about, you know, I asked him for a, for a good story, you know, a patient that he had a good outcome with. And he was basically saying, you know, that this person was probably, they, they gave him about 20% chance to live. Mm. And he said, well, you know, we went in, we did, we did what we did, you know, three hours later and, and the person lived and walked out of the <laughs> hospital two days from now. And it was so matter of factly that I was like, all right, I, I process claims for people sometimes, you know, <laughs> and, 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 and so it's just, it's just your environment, what you're used to, right? Well, once true. you get in and, it's a part of their normal process. I'm assuming it's the same in NASA. It's it's just what you guys do, and so it becomes exactly. pretty normal. Yeah, everybody's just you know we're all just human beings and uh, <laughs> our own imperfections and, and and capabilities and abilities that we work on. And and I, I didn't know that I didn't think about that story until I was telling somebody. I'm like, oh, would you? Like, They're talking about my summer. And I was like, oh yeah, I got to design our lunar communications plan. And they're like, what do you mean? I'm like, oh yeah, we're, we're going back to the moon in 2025. And I had to design a system that was going to allow us to talk to astronauts on the moon. They're like, whoa, like Apollo? I'm like, oh, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> and they're like, uh, I house trained my dog <laughs> this summer. You know, yeah, so, <laughs> no. But that's uh, it's a good way to, to mic drop in a, in a conversation, I guess. <laughs> uh, so the other thing, uh, you mentioned movies. So are there any movies that actually get come close to what, you know, because there's been a few movies, you know, my favorite one is The Martian. I love The Martian. Martian was good. You know, where it shows some of the inner workings of, of NASA, Apollo 13, Armageddon. You know, all, there's tons of movies where NASA's involved. Anything that's kind of close? Martian was a good uh, collaboration, right, with NASA and JPL. So The Martian wasn't a, a, a too far off. A lot of the time delays they showed with communication because they use a lot of time delays for yeah. communications and all that, and so that that was pretty good for how a, a Mars exploration w would go. Um, a lot of the other movies are pretty far off, <laughs> to be honest. Yeah, what I liked about The Martian was that it really showed a lot of collaboration between different governments and their space programs. Yep. Because it's not just NASA. I mean, I mean, other countries have their own space programs. Do you? Have you had experiences where you're interacting with other 
countries and obviously if they're in the international space station there must be some type of interactivity yeah so in my uh role as the operations manager i I have a global network of uh you know these space antennas and so we have a government government agreements or treaties with spain and australia but we have our large 70 meter 230 feet (laughs) antennas size of a football field basically uh in those locations and so I actually just came from uh, Spain probably about a few weeks ago. And so I work with them closely. I actually work a lot on the treaty language, on our government-to-government agreements and our contracts with the Spanish government. Do the same with Australian governments. I work with them on our, our agreements and how you work with them. Um, uh, you had an interesting visit from one of our stations in, uh, in Madrid, Spain. Uh, the king of Spain decided to visit in March. Oh, wow. He was like... You guys have a new antenna there. I want to see it. And so uh, that was interesting. I was able to actually meet him and his King Philip. So we shared the same name. So we had a little moment. Where I was like, hey, I'm Philip. You're Philip. And so that was an <laughs> interesting uh, <laughs> moment there. But he was very excited in seeing the, the opportunities there and the, what Spain's able to provide. So, yeah, there's a lot of international collaboration uh, in, in the, the arena of space. We work very closely with the European Space Agency, the Japanese Space Agency. Uh, we sent a few folks down to the Korean Space Agency recently. They built a large antenna as well, and we were checking it out to see if we can use it. But there's a lot of collaboration on the international um, arena for space communications and for just NASA in general. One of the oddest relationships, as you probably are aware of, is Russia. <laughs> right? So that's a Probably a little more stranger we... <laughs> in the last few months. Exactly, exactly. So they're one of the main partners of the International Space Station, right? So... Uh, we still collaborate with them to try to get astronauts to and from the station and, uh, you know, still collaborate with other ones as they send astronauts to the International Space Station. A little so bit of compartmentalization going on. Yeah, a little, bit, a little bit of uh, separation there, yeah. <laughs> as you can imagine. <laughs> yeah, so uh, one question I had was you have all these satellites. Are these satellites only used for communicating with individuals in space or are these satellites used for any commercial communication uh, uses in, in for the for the world yeah so our tedious tracking and data relay satellite system <laughs> had the i use acronyms so i always got to try to spell it out <laughs> so the ones that we have for communications are um, are used for uh, mostly government use right so occasionally we'll have things like uh, if you remember the the Inspiration 4 mission that happened in October, that was a SpaceX mission, which all had four private astronauts. And uh, they, they've launched into space and uh, on a private mission. Uh, we did support them. So they we, we gave them comm coverage. Uh, so they were able to successfully have their private astronaut mission. Uh, so for a few commercial companies, we were able to support them. But primarily it supports uh, government launches and government communications. And that's for our, our communication satellites. Got it. Very cool. So, uh, what do you got? What do you got to look forward to in the future? Anything? Anything big coming up that you're? Uh, I mean, obviously the lunar work that you're doing to uh, get back to the moon. Anything else? Yeah, I guess our biggest thing right now is just trying to figure out this this lunar plan. <laughs> you know, it's been uh, you know keeping the dates, keeping things built, uh, ready for that. When I looked at the our communication posture back in 2019, I. I came to realization we realization we weren't ready. <laughs> to be honest, so we looked at our systems and okay, well, we're not ready to support what we're wanting to support in the moon. 
And you think about Apollo versus now. Uh, you know, cell phones weren't around then. 4K video, 8K video wasn't around then. But you can imagine if somebody lands on the moon now, there's no way you're not going to want <laughs> 4K video or 8K video from the lunar surface. You're not going to... Nobody wants to see a grainy <laughs> Neil Armstrong stepping on the moon. They want to see the high-definition video. Static uh, conversation. Exactly. They, they, they exactly. want it crystal clear. <laughs> exactly. So in order for it to happen, we have to have solid communications. And so we're looking at how to increase our, our coverage of the moon. We're also looking at building a relay satellite that's going to go around the moon as well to relay data just like we have here on Earth. So we're working on that one. And we're also upgrading our antennas around the globe as well. So we just finished one antenna that's ready for Artemis. We have one right now, a second one that's being worked on, and we have uh, four more that will be worked on uh, to be in time for a 2025 uh, lunar landing. So that's the big push right now. And these things, when they are worked on, is it generally worked on by astronauts in space, or is it a is it a matter of them, you know, bringing them back down to Earth and then relaunching them? Yeah, well, actually, the TDRS relay satellites that are geostationary, they stay there. We don't change those. Those are just fixed in, in time. Uh, what I'm talking about is the ground-based big satellite dishes oh, that you gotcha. see. Okay. And so those are ones we work on, and those are the ones that will be communicating our primary resource to communicate out to the, to, to the moon. Now, yeah. our relay satellite that we're going to build and launch uh, out to the moon, that's, being, that's in work right now. And so that will be hopefully launched around 2023, and it will go up and orbit the, the lunar surface. But the work that we're talking about that happens like in uh, Goldstone, California, Madrid, and, and, uh, and Australia, that's all just ground-based work. And we have several engineers. We have conc So it's, <laughs> it's a major facility, right? So we have about five antennas in Madrid, four at the other complexes, and these are large dishes. So they're almost like buildings. And you can imagine like a building just moving, basically, to, to point at different locations. And so the, the type of trades we have working on those are concrete. We do a lot of concrete, mm. <laughs> a lot of mechanical, a lot of structural, a lot of electrical. It's a lot of common trades you would see just in a normal facility in a building is what we have working on those structures because we have plumbing, um, we have sanitation, we have all of that at that one complex of facility. So it's a lot of different industries that work on these highly complex uh, systems. Now, are these locations? Uh, is there's a? I'm assuming there's a geographical reason for these locations. Do yep. they provide a high elevation? What What is it about these locations that make them perfect locations for those types of things? Yeah. So the reason we have them roughly 120 degrees uh, separated is as the Earth rotates, we want to mm -hmm. make sure we're in constant contact. So it's ones on the backside. As the Earth it. rotates, we'll still have a communication. So you think about missions like Voyager, who are way out there. You know, we want to constantly be communicating to that to that one mission as Earth rotates. And so they're separated geographically to always have a view to the sky, no matter where the satellite is going in space. And Voyager, just to mention that that nugget there, Voyager 1 and 2, it takes about, I believe right now, 18 hours one-way communication to talk to Voyager. So when we send the message, it takes 18 hours before it arrives at the spacecraft and 18 hours before it comes back. So when we actually send it, we send it where the spacecraft will be, not where uh -huh. it's at. And so by the time it gets there, the message arrives and it sends it back to, to us. So it's over a day before we actually have that two-way communication. So you can imagine sending a message to somebody saying hi, and they don't get your message until 18 hours later. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's challenging, but it's, uh, it's really far out there. Yeah. 
So how much longer for those missions? For Not much longer. They, they were launched, uh, they're about 40 years old, a little over 40 years old now. So amazingly, they're still running. <laughs> Uh, you know, they're, they're launched in the seventies and they're, they're, they're still chugging along one of the fastest human made objects, right. That exists because they just keep speeding up, keep going. They went to interstellar space. So that was the first time we had any kind of object made by humans to go into interstellar space. That basically is that the pressure from the sun is less than a pressure from the, uh, the pressure from outside the solar system. So the sun's influence on Voyager is no longer present or is less than the presence and the influence that it has outside the solar system, which means it's an interstellar space, which is our first object that we've sent out to interstellar space. So, but as you said, they're, they're pretty old. The power's running out. And so there's not much, not too much time that we're going to be able to talk to them. The power we receive from them is like a, you know, we used to always say it's about one watt, uh, less than a watt, um, like a refrigerator light. Of course, everything's LEDs now, so it's a little harder to <laughs> make that comparison. But uh, <laughs> in the old refrigerators, it was about the power of a refrigerator light bulb. Is the power we get from the from Voyager from that many miles away. So it'll just eventually stop working, and it'll just peter out, and we'll lose contact with it, and then it'll just be out there. Yep, it'll keep going, <laughs> but we just won't. We just know. won't know where it is. We exactly. won't be able to communicate with it. Exactly. So you know, probably about. I guess about a good five, ten years left on those. All right. I didn't know if it was a out and back, if it was coming back, or if it sounds like no. that's that's not something that we can we can do. Not for another billion some years. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, this was this was awesome, Philip. I appreciate you giving me yeah, a few no minutes problem. of your time, especially at the end of what I'm sure was a very busy week for you. Uh, no, you it's just... always a always good to, to chat. All right. <laughs> Great. Well, um, thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it. Uh, you're gonna get uh, you're gonna you're gonna get your son to to work for NASA one day. Is that the goal? I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> get him into Legos now, right? Oh, easy. Yeah, I always get him Legos. He's a <laughs> he loves his Legos. <laughs> but it's my excuse also to play with them. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much, Philip Baldwin. Everybody, this he's a space communications navigation operations manager from. Uh, NASA, thanks for uh, letting us pull back the curtain a little bit on on what's going on at NASA. Very exciting for you, and uh, appreciate your time. Oh, thank you. Thank I you. appreciate it. All right. Thank you for joining us on our journey to learn about various topics. If you'd like to get in touch with the dad who knows nothing, connect with him at the dad who knows nothing on TikTok and Instagram or dad knows zero on Twitter. If you have a moment and you like this episode, drop us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Have a great day and enjoy your journey through this game called life.